We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or a grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Tuesday, May 22nd. Nick Whalen here with James Anderson. A um, little bit of Cavs Celtics talk to start out. We'll get into Rockets Warriors. Game four of that series uh, is tonight, uh, but we'll spend most of our time breaking down the NBA draft combine, which took place last week in Chicago. Uh, both James and I were in attendance for the two days of that that were open to the media on Thursday and Friday. Uh, we did post a recap on the site, so make sure to go read that. It has a lot of our thoughts on the players who helped themselves, maybe didn't help themselves, uh, or guys that we kind of wish that we would have seen more of uh, during those two days. But we'll get into that in a little bit. First of all, I know you were able to catch a little bit of this game last night, but Cavs Celtics now back to 2-2. Um, around this time last week, I was pretty certain that the Cavs just didn't have the horses or had run out of gas or some combination of the two um, after a, a pretty demoralizing first two games in Boston, but they've completely flipped the script now. Uh, the Celtics won games one and two by a combined 38 points. Cleveland won games three and four at home by a combined 39 points. Um, I thought they were a little bit shaky at times in the second half. Boston, I believe, whittled the lead down to six or seven points. Uh, a couple of times, but Cleveland able to make just enough shots 
uh, to keep that, you know, keep that lead around double digits for most of the game. Um, you know, what was your initial pick for this series? Uh, Cavs and six. Okay, that was mine as well. And I, I didn't think it would start this way, but at the same time, I still feel okay about Cavs and six. I, after game one, I would have changed mine to Cavs and seven. Uh, I just, mm-hmm. it sort of looked clear that they were going to have a hard time winning in Boston. So uh, I thought the Celtics were probably going to win, you know, at least two of their first three home games and they won their first two. I think I give them the edge tonight to take the lead again in the series. And then I expect the Cavs to hold serve at home. And then I think the Cavs squeak it out in a game seven, but that's going to be an environment if that happens that I certainly wouldn't have any faith in any of the non LeBron James players on the Cavs to handle very well. So it definitely could go either way, but I just, I would give LeBron the edge in a game seven, but uh, it's a lot more evenly matched than I thought it was going to be coming in. And a large part of that is something we've discussed off air where I, I think that it's kind of indisputable that the Celtics have at least six of the eight best players in the series. And it just kind of comes down to how much, does LeBron make up for that gap in terms of just if you're ranking players in the series, it's it's really heavily skewed towards the Celtics. Right. And you know, Boston still hasn't lost a game at home in these playoffs. And I think if that's going to happen, certainly I, I wouldn't bet against LeBron in a game seven in Boston. Um, you know, I haven't been very public about this, but I generally do root for LeBron James in the NBA playoffs. So Part of me wants this to just be over in six, you know, just eliminate the stress of a game seven. But LeBron with this Cavs team in Boston, you know, going into an environment in which at that point they would have won, I think, nine straight at home, um, you know, with a supporting cast that has been so up and down. Um, and it really seems like it goes, you know, it's, it's either all or nothing with, with guys like Kevin Love, George Hill, especially J.R. Smith. You know, they either all play well together or they all seem to play poorly um, and obviously it's been the opposite through the first four games of the series. I think Al Horford, I wouldn't, I don't, I'm hesitant to give all the credit to Tristan Thompson because I don't think it's that simple, but Al Horford has been completely neutralized these last two games. Um, Tristan Thompson certainly played well and he's the main reason for that. Um, but, but the Cavaliers, it's really night and day when they actually choose to try on defense. And, and I think that's really been the biggest difference from games one and two to three and four. Yeah, Tristan Thompson was trying. George Hill was trying. Uh, Larry Nance was trying. Yeah. I I mean, I think this was, despite him scoring 44 points, I don't think this was a great game by LeBron. I mean, this was probably his worst defensive effort, uh, and it and he had seven turnovers. So I thought it was impressive that they won as handily as they did, given how he played. I know he scored 44, but, I mean, he was a complete uh, – I mean, Jalen Brown, whoever named the Celtic, they were getting by him kind of at will on the other end. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, they've been really relying on the role players to actually bring a little bit of intensity on that end of the court. I I just don't think they're going to be able to defend well enough in Boston to win uh, game five. And that's – I mean, if they all D up, if LeBron all of a sudden gets in the time machine and gets back to, like, the defender he was four or five years ago, then they could totally win. I just don't, I don't see it happening until they get back to Cleveland. And then game seven is kind of where you just let it all leave it all Mm -hmm. out on the line. I think LeBron's been good defending at the rim 
like literal shot blocking. But other than that, yeah, you're right. I, I think he's. I, I mean, I don't even think we can say he's conserving energy at this point. Like you're in the Eastern Conference Finals. I don't know what you're conserving your energy for um, this late in the season. He's just he's not really willing to go the extra step off ball, um, and certainly that has not helped. Cleveland's defense I, I wrote down in my notes too that they need more I think out of Kevin Love it, it Love played really well in games one and two oddly enough in the, in the two blowout losses has really struggled the last two games um and he averaged what I think 21 and 12 against Toronto in, in that four game series really hasn't been anywhere close to that uh in this series Kyle Korver played a, C, a series high 25 minutes last night um, although that's a little misleading because, you know, there have been so many blowouts. We don't really know how many minutes he'd play if these were all close for four quarters. But, um, you know, last night, I think for the first time in this series, we saw Boston mess up a couple of times with Corver off ball. Um, you know, there were some, some instances where they had Corver, you know, and Kevin Love screening for each other as they did. And that, that worked so well against Toronto that caused some confusion that there was one, even I think with Corver and, and Jeff Green, where, you know, Marcus Smart, um, you know, just was so glued to Kyle Korver that he just forgot that Jeff Green was cutting for a layup. Um, so I think Cleveland needs to get to more of that. But I mean, as you as you know, the most important thing to me is that Jordan Clarkson and Rodney Hood are now completely out of the rotation. Uh, Clarkson, I think, played four minutes in garbage time last night. Rodney Hood hasn't even played at all in the last two games. So after Tyron Lue kind of snapped at Jason Lloyd uh, of the Athletic in Cleveland for asking why Rodney Hood is in the rotation. We have not even seen him on the court since then. Yeah, I mean that's just the way it should <laughs> be, should kind be. of <laughs> trending. I, I those guys have been really bad, uh, kind of opposites of each other in terms of how they've been bad. Like Clarkson has just no fear at all. Uh, Hood is terrified, and they're both pretty bad. So. Um, yeah, you can't have Hood out there if he's not going to take open shots, and you can't have Clarkson out there if he's going to try to take over while LeBron's on the court. Uh, I think that their team is – its ceiling is the highest when Corver's out there. And, I, I mean, the Celtics were pretty good at going at him defensively in the second half, but I still think it just you, – you need him out there for his floor spacing on offense because I don't trust J.R. Smith at all. Like, I know he was three for six last night, but, I mean, some of his misses have just been really ugly. Like, he had a brick in the first quarter that I, like, audibly uh, responded to just because of how, <laughs> how off it was. Uh, I mean, George Hill, I think, is is a guy I'd trust more than J.R. Smith in terms of shooting an open three right now. Uh, their offense, to me, seems like it's – or just their their overall team might be at its best when they go Corver Hill, LeBron Love Thompson. Even though mm-hmm. that that ends up with uh, Kevin Love and Kyle Corver sometimes getting sort of exploited on the other end. I think you just need guys that can hit open shots uh, next to LeBron because like J.R. Smith, it's just he's been bad defensively too. So give me give me the guy that's actually hitting shots. Um, I thought it was fine seeing Nance in there but I mean I, I don't think he's a guy that you want to be given more than like eight or ten minutes to uh Jeff Green is another guy that I would ideally you know especially when you get to like a game seven hopefully you can tighten up the rotations even more so and just kind of keep it to a six six and a half man rotation 
Yeah, Jeff Jeff Green had a nice little like game and a half run against Toronto last round, but he he's got to be just a bit player for them. Would the Cavs be in this exact same spot if they had never made the midseason trades? Like, let's say they either send Isaiah home or he just kind of gets hurt as he did in in LA, gets surgery and and goes away. Like, if they just exile it keep Dwayne Wade keep Jay Crowder even if they're not playing all that well I feel like they're somehow in better shape because they're really not getting anything from any of the guys they acquired I guess George Hill um, although that was technically a separate deal that didn't involve it that was just the Shumpert um, and Shumpert trade with the Kings you're getting a little bit out of Larry Nance but like you said I mean that's that's anything you get out of him is a bonus at this point yeah I think getting rid of it was the one thing they had to do and they kind of did a little bit too much especially mm-hmm. if you factor in the long-term ramifications of those deals i think that they were all uh pretty regrettable and didn't really swing things a ton i mean i wouldn't really want to be giving Dwayne wade the type of minutes they'd probably have to be giving him if he was still on the team but mm-hmm. uh it's not like i mean wade would be better than jr smith wade would be probably at least as good or slightly better than george hill so well uh, the minutes that you're you know ideally the thing is with wade is you're kind of obligated to give him a certain number of minutes like if you could just agree to play if you could just give him the jeff green minutes minutes, yeah you give the jeff green minutes the minutes that you hope to be getting out of clarkson and you know and uh rodney hood basically when lebron's off the court you can have george hill off the court and, and let wade run things for a little bit because the big the big stretches that, that still matter for the Cavs are those three minutes, you know, at the end of a quarter or at the beginning of a quarter when LeBron is resting. Um, and they, to their credit, they did a good job of, of maintaining and even slightly building upon the lead when LeBron was out last night. But um, it, it still gets pretty tough to watch, and there's really no semblance of an offense. Um, I think you and I both agree that it doesn't matter. Whoever comes out of that series isn't really going to give Golden State um, or Houston, if we want to entertain that possibility really any sort of fight in the finals but we do have game four of that series tonight um do you have any faith in houston whatsoever to claw back into this uh no i mean i i don't know how big the margin's going to be for the warriors but uh i mean as long as they kind of bring sort of 85 percent effort i think that they should be good tonight especially at home yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I 41-point loss. I don't think you can just brush that aside. Um, you know, I get that Houston kind of gave up early in the fourth quarter, and, and a lot of that was just Nick Young and JaVale McGee going to work. But, I mean, the gap between Golden State and the next best team is just massive. And this Houston team wins the title. <clears throat> excuse me, wins the title. If Golden State doesn't exist, they, they win the title, what, seven out of the last ten years? I mean, I think this Houston team was better than some of those Miami teams. You know, it's probably up there with the 2015 Warriors. Um, But, I mean, we just when we see Golden State bring it like they did in game one, like they did in game three, um, I mean, it just really, really illustrates how huge the gap is. Uh, Okay, a couple news items before we get into the combine. The Bucks officially hired Mike Budenholzer over the weekend. Uh, Not really much of a surprise. I, I think he had kind of emerged as the favorite after it was clear that they weren't going to hire Becky Hammond. Um, you know, there was some talk about Messina from the Spurs as well, but I think Bud was kind of the guy all along. The only impetus might've been when Toronto fired Dwayne Casey, it looked like they might jump in on it and there might be some sort of bidding war. Um, but my guess is that Bud probably could have at least worked his way into the top two or three candidates with Toronto. But I, I mean, from all indications it's that he chose 
uh, to go to Milwaukee. And I mean, considering the, the other option, I mean, Toronto, I guess is a, a free pass to maybe a top three or four seed for sure next season. But I think coaches, I should say, generally want to side with the the team that has the top five guy. Yeah, I think some team, I think some coaches would prefer the Toronto job just because they would have. Uh, it's probably an easier job, at least in the short term, just to kind of keep the status quo there. Uh, but I think you, I don't know if you want to sign up for this stage of. DeRozan and Lowry's respective careers and especially if if like ownerships told you that there's no DeRozan trade coming or no Lowry trade coming uh, you'd probably want to take the the team with just Giannis and just go from there it's it's kind of a I mean it's one of the, it's one of those hirings where it just kind of screams coach of the year just because of how bad the previous regimes were there's going to be like that you know you would think like a 10 game difference in terms of wins from this past year to the next year just based on the coaching change so uh it's nice for that reason i the one like i've as a quasi bucks fan i've wanted bud to be the guy just because i think that that's the safest move you can't risk hiring a guy that doesn't know what he's doing and kind of that forcing Mm -hmm. Giannis out of town but he's been kind of hesitant to switch in the past uh he's one of those sort of old school coaches that still likes you know guys trying to battle through screens and stuff like that uh but I think this Bucks team just really needs a switching defensive scheme especially you know like two through four or even one through four uh they're kind of built to do that so I I hope that he kind of allows them to go that route on defense but uh yeah I think I think it's going to be a good hire no matter what yeah and that was kind of my argument for not hiring Becky Hammond not that she's a woman not that you know she doesn't have experience as a head coach it's like this is the biggest hire in Bucks franchise history I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say they really haven't had any other you know franchise crossroads like this where you need to nail this now you need to show Giannis that you're making progress there's not that much you can do roster wise this summer um you know you can make a, a couple changes with your you know, we'll see what happens with Jabari, but you can you can swap out your six through nine guys maybe and see if that changes anything. But this is going to be their big move, and I, I think it'll ultimately <clears throat> it'll ultimately reveal the ceiling of this team because we've seen Budenholzer. You know, what did the Hawks win? Sixty something games, sixty one games, sixty two games with with a roster that maybe top to bottom was deeper, but certainly doesn't have the top end talent uh, that the Bucks have. So I, I think going with the guy who has probably the highest floor. And maybe a, maybe a lower ceiling than some, but uh, still a relatively high ceiling. Um, I, I think this was the right move for the Bucks, and you know all indications are that Giannis is on board, Chris Middleton is on board, and and I think that's equally important. Uh, other news item before we get to the combine: All NBA, <clears throat> All NBA rookie teams were announced earlier this afternoon. I wouldn't say there were any real surprises. Um, first team: Donovan Mitchell, Ben Simmons. Jason Tatum, Kyle Kuzma, Laurie Markkinen, second team, Smith Jr., Ball, Collins, Bogdanovich, and Josh Jackson. Mitchell and Simmons obviously were unanimous. Jason Tatum was one vote shy of being unanimous. Unfortunately, these the votes have not been publicized, um, but he got one second team vote, which is a little ridiculous. Josh Jackson also got one first team vote, so that's a little bit odd to me i'm not sure how you could possibly 
make that mistake. But I think no real qualms here. Is there anybody you know that you don't see on here that you think should be? I would have probably put OG Ananobi on there instead mm-hmm. of Jackson, just because. Uh, I mean, I I get kind of going with the pedigree and kind of like I like all rookie and all like rookie of the year and all that stuff to factor a little bit in like just how good do we think these guys are going to be down the road uh but you know Josh Jackson was just a complete train wreck in terms of all like intangible related stuff and probably really really helped them uh tank as hard as they did whereas OG Ananobi I think really contributed to winning especially like you saw the way that he guarded LeBron in the playoffs, not that that needs to factor in, but like that's the type of player he is, is a guy that can be useful in a in an impactful playoff series, whereas Josh Jackson, I mean, I don't think there would have been any playoff series where he would have been a close right. to a net, even just like an even player. I think I think Jack, Josh Jackson benefited a lot <coughs> from just basically being granted playing 40 minutes a game right. for the last two months. Um, and, then, you know, I mean, I'm not – I don't really care who's on second team all-rookie. But, yeah, I, I think I, I think OG would have deserved that spot. He did get two first-team votes, and he finished fourth among um, other – third, third, excuse me, among players receiving other votes. Bam Adebayo was – technically had more total votes, but since he didn't have a first-team vote, he was left off in favor of Jackson. De'Aaron Fox was after Bam, then OG, then Jared Allen, then Dylan Brooks. Ugh. Uh, also, someone gave Milos Teodosic a first team vote, which I tweeted. I, I wish I wish I had a vote. I would have done that if I did. Uh, but props to whoever that was. Let's get into the combine. Um, as we wrote uh, on the piece on the site, which again you can find on rotowire.com. No DeAndre Ayton, no Luka Doncic, which is a little bit disappointing, although not completely unexpected. Marvin Bagley was there, but only met with teams privately. We didn't see him at all. He didn't go through any of the drills, any of the measurements. Um, but everyone else at least got measured. Um, you know, your Jaron Jacksons, um, Obama, guys like that, didn't go through agility testing, obviously didn't play five-on-five, five, which makes sense. Um, but we can kind of use, I guess, the, the piece on the site as, as a guide. I'll let you go first and talk about whoever you want, whether it's someone that impressed you, someone who didn't impress you, Maybe somebody that you were excited to see in the bathroom, something like that. Uh, most impressive was probably Steve Ballmer's entrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clippers owner, uh, noted multi-billionaire, walked in the gym on the first day, get pretty close to the start of the first scrimmage uh, with like a to-go box of fried chicken i couldn't tell where it, it was appeared from to be chick-fil-a based on the colors but we cannot confirm okay well i think a lot of those places have similar colors but um mm-hmm. red and white seems to yeah be a constant. like it, it it really it could have been churches it could have been chick-fil-a it could have been kfc popeyes i'd like to i kind of hope i kind of hope that it was popeyes but sure. um yeah he like <laughs> you know everyone else is just kind of there being sort of professional and everything like that. And the like rich, the richest guy in the building walks in with some like $7 fried chicken <laughs> in a plastic bag that he's taken over to his courtside seat to eat while he watches these guys. He's never heard of scrimmage. <laughs> uh, no, I actually did see a comment that said he was there because his son played in the same league as Michael Porter once. So he wanted uh-huh. to, he wanted to check out the Porter brothers because sure. he had a connection there. All right. So 
Shame on you for assuming that he didn't know what he was doing. Well, he still didn't know who any of the guys scrimmaging were. No, definitely not. Um, <laughs> he was watching the scrimmages. He wasn't watching the Porter guys do anything. Yeah, and he took a long time to eat that chicken, which <laughs> is a story unto, un, un, unto itself. But the highlight of the week for me, obviously, was seeing Sean May, um, you know, one of my childhood heroes, one of my heroes into adult life. Corey McGetty was there, um, appeared to be doing some sort of work with the NBA, doing some sort of media stuff. Uh, I also had Balmer on my list. Joe Lacob was there, which was interesting. We didn't really get to the bottom of why he was there. Although this did fall at kind of an odd time because there was no game on Thursday, no game on Friday. Um, so we probably would have seen fewer executives, I would imagine, if there were games going on, especially from Golden State, Houston, Cleveland, and Boston. Um, Tibbs, I think, wore the same outfit we deduce for the third straight year. Um, it's good to see him at his usual courtside spot and then Cherokee Parks maybe the most unlikely guy that I expected to see he was doing some sort of NBA intern program as well uh so good to see that he's on the right track we should probably talk about DiVincenzo um I think if there was one clear quote-unquote winner from the week it would be him um and you and I kind of talked about him in the same context as Hamadou Diallo last year who came to the combine after practicing with Kentucky kind of had this mystique around him. He's this great athlete. He threw up like a 44-and-a-half-inch vertical, um, you know, and, and was great in the agility testing. And then kind of surprisingly ended up going back to Kentucky. Uh, but we'll talk about him in a little bit. Di Vincenzo uh, had the highest max vertical at the combine, the highest standing vertical. Um, and unlike Diallo, played really, really well in five-on-five five scrimmages. And now I think it's to the point where – Two weeks ago, I think this seemed like he was testing the waters and he'd probably go back to Villanova, but he played well enough, tested well enough, measured well enough that I think we've reached the territory where it'd now be a surprise if he doesn't stay in and a surprise if he's not taken probably in the top 25. Yeah, I I think he's going to go in the 15 to 25 range. I thought, obviously, the, the athleticism that he tested, uh, like that, that's going to help him. Uh, go that high I mean it's going to ease a lot of concerns that some teams might have about him but I I thought the the best measurement he had at least for me was just that he was six four and a half with shoes which is plenty tall enough to be able to guard most ones and twos I think he's got the quickness and uh you know I think he'll make good enough decisions to be able to check most ones and then against twos obviously there's going to be some bigger guys that he's going to be mismatched against but that's usually the case if you're like a six six two or six seven two then you usually get that mismatch so if he had measured like six two and a half or six three then that would be kind of concerning because I don't really see him as a point guard but that that was a big a big mark in his favor uh just really kind of looked the part in the scrimmages a couple of the threes he made were you know deep contested threes uh above the break you know I mean he he wasn't just hitting wide open like corner threes or something uh had some he skied for some really impressive rebounds just I think he had had 13 rebounds in the two scrimmages which is really great for for a guard and uh shows that he can kind of put that leaping ability to use in games and you know I think that all the kind of intangible stuff we saw in the NCAA tournament is going to be you know big mark in his favor I don't think you in this draft we've talked about how top heavy it is you know outside of the top 
11 or 12 players, I really think all you should be trying to do is get a pretty useful rotation player who doesn't have the type of huge gaping flaws that would make them someone you couldn't play in a playoff series. Like you're not going to get, like if you have the 18th pick or 19th pick, you shouldn't be expecting to get a starter. You should just be hoping to get like a competent seventh or eighth man who you can play uh, 15, 25 minutes in a playoff series, hopefully. And I think that DiVincenzo, if, if teams are just kind of looking at it like that, like we're not trying to get a starter here. We're just trying to get a guy that is going to be useful for us. I think he totally fits that bill. Yeah, I think he's going to go in the right range for him too. You know, I, I think – this draft, as we've said over and over, is very top heavy. There's a lot of high upside bigs in that, you know, one to eight range, but there's a very clear drop off, as as is the case with most drafts, but I think it's even more stark this year, you know, between nine and ten and then the rest. And I think to some degree you wanna you wanna throw darts at guys you think could be stars. I think we're probably gonna hear the next Donovan Mitchell like a hundred times on the draft telecast. I don't think that there's really a guy you know, I guess if you want to call Lonnie Walker, you know, he fits that profile to some degree. Um, you know, we're just not going to see someone like Donovan Mitchell every year. That's really what it comes down to. But, yeah, getting someone like DiVincenzo, you know, I would hope that he goes to a good team, a good organization that, you know, maybe he's not a huge contributor right away. But, like, it's it wouldn't shock me to see him be, like, a, a Luke Kennard-level contributor for a decent team next year. I think maybe he's a little less NBA-ready than Kennard was, but I think he probably has a higher long-term upside. Uh, the question with DiVincenzo is like, can he play the point at, at, at you know in the NBA? I don't think right away, um, but he kind of has that size where you. I think you'd rather him be a big point guard than a small two. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's I don't think it's super necessary to pigeonhole him into one position or the other. Like we've kind of gotten away from that in recent years, and and I think that makes sense. Yeah, I, I try to think of it more as like primary ball handler, and I don't really think he can sure. do that. Uh, I think that he can be a guy that is your backup one or your backup two, but not a guy who over long stretches of the game, like is going to be running the offense and that's fine. Like that's what you should be shooting for. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I've, I just kind of ruled out the idea of him being like a true point guard, but I uh, am interested to see just what type of defender he can be. Like is the effort he, was there. Yeah, and he's got athleticism. So, I mean, the the knock on him, I guess, from the measurable portion of the combine is the wingspan, which is six six. But with his athleticism, his speed, uh, I think there's a shot that he could be an above average defender, and that would go a long, long way to him being a guy that you could have in a rotation on a really good team and I think the the shooting's definitely something I expect to be there at the next level uh so it's really like is he going to be a, a liability on defense in that case maybe he ends up being kind of a bust because like he's probably not going to be good enough at everything else to right. make it worth dealing with that but I think he's got a shot to be above average there and that's that's what I'm looking for so some of the comps that I've seen, The Ringer has Jody Meeks, Courtney Lee, Nick Stauskas. I don't think those are terrible. I mean, I, I think if he becomes a Courtney Lee, I mean, he, Courtney I Lee was like a borderline starter for some pretty good Magic team. Yeah, I, I can see okay the Courtney that. Lee one. I can't really see the other two. Yeah, I don't, I don't like Stauskas. That, that seems like a, a race-based comp. Um, Javon Carter was a guy who stood out to me. I mean, not a, not a guy who's going to hear his name called in the first round unless 
maybe it's way at the end. Um, I know Bobby Marks on the telecast kind of talked about him in the same light that teams talked about Frank Mason last year, an older player, a guy who's, whose upside at the NBA level is only so high when you're 22, 23, coming out of four years uh, in college. But, I mean, as we talked about before the combine, like it's these type of players that generally look really good in scrimmages. And I, I think Javon Carter would have been getting a lot more buzz if he wasn't turning 23 in September. Um, I mean, he basically brought his Javon Carter West Virginia game to the combine. He was picking up guys literally on the baseline when they were getting the ball inbounds, hounding them full court. Um, I think in day two of scrimmages, Jalen Hands from UCLA was was getting pretty sick of Javon Carter hounding him and forcing him into a couple ill-advised jumpers. So I think teams saw that. Um, I, I mean, you, you mentioned DiVincenzo coming in at, at over 6'4". Like, that was a pleasant surprise. Almost always it works the other way, where these guys are listed at 6'6", and they end up being 6'4". And, um, you know, Javon Carter, I think, measured in smaller than expected. He was barely over 6 feet without shoes, 6'1 in shoes. Not great, um, although he's not a guy that you're necessarily – drafting for his size or, or for even for his offensive ability. I think he's a type of player that you bring in and you hope, you know, if he becomes your backup point guard, eventually that's great. I think the initial expectations were with him. If he goes somewhere between 30 and 40, 45 are that, you know, he's a fringe guy as a rookie, he becomes your second, third point guard. And then year three or four, maybe you kind of luck your way into a really good backup long-term. Yeah, I'm I'm less <clears throat> I'm less high on him. I I mean I I liked Frank Mason quite a bit as a mm-hmm. second rounder last year just because I thought he was going to be able to score off the bench pretty easily and with Carter like I get that he can shut down certain guards defensively, but I don't think he's going to be able to shut down the best guards in the world defensively I don't think so. and I don't think he's going to be able to shoot at all. So I I just I don't see that one skill there that's going to be able to carry him given his physical limitations. One of the funny things with him too is the NBA, like when we got there, they had posted most of the, uh, the like measurements and weights and all that. And they, they mixed up Wendell Carter and Javon Carter. So like myself and other people are sitting there reading this, like Javon Carter weighs 255 pounds in that frame. And somehow Wendell Carter weighs only 196. Um, but no, I'm with you. I think, that style, like you're not going to be picking up guys 94 feet in the NBA. If you do that, half the point guards in the league are going to run right by you. So I think his, like his style is extremely college basketball. Like mm-hmm. he's a very, very, very good college basketball player, whose game, in theory, shouldn't really translate all that well. I mean, he's a, an okay offensive player. He, I think he had like 17 points, a couple of pull-up jumpers. Um, in day two of scrimmages, I mean, but he, he bricked one three like <laughs> off the side of the backboard, like he it was pretty have. open. Like I mean, it. I just don't see any way that he's good enough he as a shooter to become a much to much play. better spot up shooter if he's going to have any chance. Yes. Um, going back to Villanova guys, uh, obviously McCall Bridges did not scrimmage. Uh, the the cutoff this year seemed to be, I mean, it might have been Divincenzo in terms of the highest projected players to scrimmage. And, and I did read too that DiVincenzo was advised not to scrimmage on Friday, but he insisted on playing again. Like he had played well enough not to secure a promise, mm-hmm. but at least that his camp felt like he'd secured his way into the first round. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just looking at some other mocks. I mean, Jacob Evans played, Anthony Melton played, mm-hmm. uh, 
Melvin Frazier played. Those guys are all kind of in that. Josh Okogie played. Those guys are all sort of in that back 10 or so of the mm-hmm. first round. Um, you know, Kata Bates-Jop didn't play. Uh, Shake Milton did play, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Kata Bates-Jop and Zaire Smith were probably the cutoff of how good you could be and not scrimmage, mm-hmm. or at least how good you could be and have your camps advise you against skim- scrimmaging. Um because those guys, I think, are pretty securely in the middle of the first round. Yeah. Didn't see Grayson Allen in scrimmages. Didn't see Trayvon Duvall. Didn't see Billy Preston. Uh, no Troy Brown. I Like I said at the top, I think Hamadou Diallo should have played. I think that was pretty clear. He His vertical was four inches lower than it was last year. He didn't blow anybody away You know, in the other testing portions. He didn't grow five inches in the last year. Like it, To me, like he didn't play well enough at Kentucky to warrant sitting out the scrimmage portion. No, I I think Aaron Holiday should have played probably. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I I think most of the guy like like the Duke guys, I guess Grayson Allen maybe I could see a case for not playing in if you just want to be very risk averse because I guess there's a chance that you go out there and you play and like it's clear that you're not one of the yeah. four or five I think best with him guys though, out there. There's enough tape on him like with Trayvon Duvall, like I mean Maybe it's wise to just not play just because you hope you get drafted in the second round based on your measurables. Uh, you're not it's like knowing gonna get, you're going to get exposed. You're not going to get drafted <laughs> in the first round, or you're definitely not getting drafted in the first round, I don't think, if you're Trayvon Duvall. Um, maybe I, I could be imagine. wrong maybe, about that. Maybe but, in like one of the last five picks. Um, I think it's I, – I think you're better off playing than not playing. Like even a guy like – well, in in this range we're talking about, like even a guy like Kata Bates Jop, like I could see, you know, you, you could go out there. Um, I mean, you you theoretically like this kind of finished product, well rounded player. You could go out there and be clearly the best guy on the court and play your way from like the sixteen to twenty two range into like the late lottery. I think. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's something to be gained i guess i I totally get why like shea gilgus alexander didn't play and uh kevin knox and that type of thing because you're, you're hoping you just get in the lottery based on your uh, body of work at college but i think there are other guys where you could benefit from going a bit higher if you want to go a bit higher there's also right. if i was an agent to a guy like bates job maybe i see a case for trying to have him slide a little bit down the first round so we can go to a better situation yeah i mean we can we can talk like obviously we'd like to see everybody play but like it's going to take players sliding because they didn't you know and and i I don't know if it's ever going to happen but we're going to need to see players fall and teams say like look we we wanted to see more of you you or not or not even that just maybe get leapfrogged by like guys like divincenzo could go ahead of like six or seven of the guys that didn't scrimmage oh yeah and so that that could be your incentive for scrimmaging Mm -hmm. it's like if you don't want this guy to pass you go out there and right. outperform him yeah i don't i don't think we're ever going to get to that point with like top five or top 10 guys you know like if you're if you're michael porter no. or you're like kevin knox like there's just there's just no real incentive to that but yeah, i wouldn't even show up if i was those no. guys i wouldn't even show up to do the measure measurement part no <laughs> no not i mean like teams are going to do that anyway yeah I'll, right? I'll measure at your facility if you want but i i'm not going to go right. to chicago just for this thing yeah i mean i think some of it is just you know, there's all the teams are there. You can knock mm-hmm. out meetings. You know, a lot of the guys went on the TV broadcast and things like that. But 
yeah, I think honestly, overall, I was surprised how many of those guys, like it was not a surprise whatsoever when we got that email, I think on Wednesday that Bagley was backing out, you know, like he probably never should have committed to that in the first place. Um, Jonte Porter had the, he pretty much was last in like all the agility and jumping drills, anything that involved athleticism. He was way at the bottom. Went into the week, you know, you're hearing, you know, this is a guy's maybe going to work his way into the early to mid 20s. And by the end of the week, it's being reported that now he's expected to head back to school, which, um, I mean, I, I got to admit, I didn't know a lot about Jonte Porter. He, based on what he looked like, I did, he didn't look like someone who would be, you know, that unathletic relative to the rest of the guys who were tested. Um, but, but at the end of the day, I mean, for a guy who's that young and, you know, reclassified up a year, to to attempt to play with his brother who really only played in like two and a half games um i think another year at missouri probably makes sense for him yeah i didn't really have any strong opinions about him either way probably another guy who should have scrimmaged yeah i mean at least if you were that on the fence that you were (laughs) willing to go back to school just because you were the fattest guy there then you probably should have scrimmaged right i think that's pretty clear um omari spellman from villanova he played. He played well on day two, I guess, but I was just not not impressed with what I saw from him, especially in day one. Um, I mean, he's every bit the athlete. He worked hard on the glass. You're going to keep hearing over and over that he he's lost a ton of weight. He's dropped his body fat like insane numbers, which is all well and good. But he's undersized. He still looks like he could probably drop a few more pounds, and his jump shot, especially on Thursday, looked really really shaky. Like literally, his arm was. You know, he, had, he was having a hard time looking like he could repeat the same motion over and over, which to me is a little bit of a concern. You know, if you're going to be a little bit undersized, you at least have to have a reliable mid-range jumper. And, and it looked to me like he was forcing things both in the mid-range and from three. And, you know, the results, I think he shot something like five of 14 from the field, which obviously for a big man uh, is, you know, there's room for improvement there. And again, he did do better on Thursday but or on Friday, but I, I came away on Thursday a little bit disappointed in what I saw from him. Yeah, the shot just looks broken. Uh, Spellman and the two, the the Martin twins from Nevada, were the, the yes, very similar three guys. Where if you just saw their bodies, you could maybe dream on something, and then as soon as you see them shoot, you're like, oh, never mind. Yep, cross exactly. them off. Um, is there going to be any Trey Young versus Colin Sexton debate? You know, as the only like two true like elite guard prospects depending on what you want to call Luka Doncic uh I think I would take Shea Gilgis Alexander over both of them okay um I think there probably will be some on like stupid ESPN shows and stuff like that that just want to talk about guys that people have heard of but uh I don't I don't have a great feel on either of them being winning players. Uh, maybe Sexton, if he just commits to being a just wreaking havoc on the defensive end. But I, I just find it really tough to imagine a team building a because like Trey Young has to be for for you know if you're taking him where you probably have to take him, you need to build your offense mm-hmm. around him. And I can't imagine that offense being. Uh, even league average and then with Sexton uh, it's another guy where like theoretically in that range where he's going to go he's going to be tasked with being the primary ball handler and I just don't really see that being a great offense either so 
for Sexton, I think there's a chance that he could be a winning player on a better team if he was coming off the bench and just hounding people defensively and getting some easy buckets against the second unit. But I, I think Gilgis Alexander's got a much better shot at, than those other two of being a guy that you could plug into like any situation and he would end up being a, a net positive. Yeah, no, I mean, he was one of the winners, I think, in terms of measurements. Came in at 6'6", which is about what, what people expected, just under seven feet on the wingspan. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, Trey Young was 6'1 and three quarters in shoes. Colin Sexton was 6'1 and a half in shoes. Sexton was listed at 6'3". That always seemed probably a little generous, but even like 6'1 and a half in shoes to me was was shorter than I expected. Does have the 6'7 wingspan. Um, Trey Young, though, just a 6'3 wingspan. I, I mean, I, I could, I feel like Colin Sexton has a much better chance to be, to have an Alfred Payton start to his career than, you know, what you would want out of a point guard that you're maybe taking eighth or ninth. Like to me, like him sliding to the Clippers with one of those last picks in the lottery would be a lot of fun. I think that would be like a good spot for him to go in terms of development um because him on a team like on a really bad team where they're just they might just turn the keys over to him uh is a pretty scary proposition and like I'm not completely out on Trey Young I think there's a chance that he's good but he can't like when he's on the court whether it's starting or the backup point guard whatever it is like everything has to go through him you have to play his style um you know certainly I'm sure he can play off the ball to some degree as a catch and shoot guy but defensively you know, you really can't afford to do that. Like, there, I just don't I mean, see how that's going to work defensively, out. Defensively, like, he's – I think – I don't think people understand just how much worse he's going to be defensively than even Steph Curry, the guy yes. he gets compared to. Like, teams in the regular season don't typically hunt guys out and just isolate after isolate after isolate. Like, that's – He's going to be the, the worst defender in the league. Yeah, and, and so, like, players aren't even going to have to be told by their coaches, like – we need to go after this guy. They're right. just going to like see him and be like, Oh, Holy crap. Like, like, I gotta go like where do you even guy. hide a guy like Trey Young? You can't, like, I don't think you, you shouldn't be able to like any he, functioning offense should be right. able to find him. Unless and, the other team is playing like Luke Rittenauer at the two. There's yeah. Not a yeah, exactly. Him. So like, yeah, you could theoretically hide him on just like an Andre Roberson type of guy, but yeah. you could just clear out, have Roberson post up and he's going to get a bucket. And Trey teams Young. are also like, like, there's only like two teams in the league that have guys like that anymore. Yeah. You know? So it's just, he has to, I just, I don't see. I, I think feel it's bad be... if the Knicks take him. This feels like that might happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a total like ownership level pick. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I mean, uh, there's a point where you take him. Like, I just yeah. don't think that that point is in the top 10. Um, you know, if you get down into that sort of like Troy Brown, um, you know, Robert Williams, Lonnie Walker, like yes. Kata Bates Jop, those types of guys, like, I guess I see the case for taking Young and just hoping that that like 10% chance that he's mm -hmm. so good offensively to, to make up for everything else actually comes to fruition. But uh, I just can't see any case for taking him over like Gilgis Alexander, even a guy like Kevin Knox. Um, I would take Sexton and just bet on like the two-way potential there. Uh, I would think it's fairly easy for me to imagine Sexton growing like Terry Rozier, right? Like a guy who comes in, you know, he's a good defender. You know, he's going to go hard. There's I clearly... Mean, <laughs> It wasn't that long ago. Like, I'm there's probably still some mock drafts up that have uh, 
Trey Young going in the top six, and I think top that three. I think that that's just pure insanity. Like I, I can't see any, like there's just a zero percent chance he's. I, I think there's a zero percent chance he's better than Michael Porter. I'd rather, I'd much rather take Mo Bamba. I'd much rather take Wendell Carter. I'd much rather take Mikael Bridges. I'd even rather take Miles Bridges, who I think is has has a lot of bust potential as well. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a chance, or a decent chance, that he's a good offensive player, but like, he's never going to reach a level where he offsets how bad he's going to be on D. Right. And I don't even know what that level would look like. Like, the that whole the whole like argument um, that kind of came out of the Jazz being as competitive as they were is just like, is Rudy Gobert? like on the same level as like a James Harden or Kevin Durant. And like, he's probably not quite on that level, but it's like, it's like in, you know, he's within shouting range of those guys in terms of how much he can impact a game. But like, there isn't an offensive player who is so much better than the next best offensive player that is comparable to how Mm. much worse he's going to be than the next worst defensive player. So I just, I think he's just, guaranteed to be a net negative because of how bad he'll be on that other end of the court and that's gonna you know that's gonna mess with the guy's psyche too if he's just out there and then for 25 minutes a game he's just getting completely abused on the defensive end like how is he gonna have the confidence to just go back up and be good on offense I mean it's gonna be pretty uh, humiliating no I completely agree like the best case scenario if if you're the biggest Trey Young fan in the world the best case scenario is he becomes Isaiah last season Sure. Yeah. Like, that's that's all well and good. You need but... you need him you need him to go to the Celtics, basically. Right. Yeah. And you he... need the Celtics to like get rid of all their good pieces and yes. go back to like that pre competition right. window and, where and and anytime he's on the court, scheme to make everything run through him on both ends, basically for forty minutes, and then gets you know lose in the conference finals in five games. Like it's, I just don't like it, there. It, it at some point, like you said, you have to take him, but it's not in the top ten because. There are, you know, there's a, this isn't the deepest draft in the world, but there are enough appealing prospects that it doesn't make sense to take him that high. Um, did you want to talk about like Melvin Frazier, DeAnthony Melton, Akogi at all guys you wrote up on, on the site? Uh, I mean, I'll just kind of like a teaser, like the, the guys that I like was impressed by that played in the combine or that played in the scrimmages were, um, the wings that have some two-way potential because like if you're a big man and you have to be scrimmaging you're probably just not good enough to play in this era of the NBA and if you're a point guard and you have to be scrimmaging like maybe you could be like the next Malcolm Brogdon or something like that but you're probably not going to be heard from uh, very often but like the the guys on the wing are the ones where I think you can maybe slip through the cracks enough to the point where you would have to partake in the scrimmaging guys from like smaller schools or guys that just, uh, for whatever reason, didn't get a ton of attention. I think like Josh Akogi, like you look at his measurements, that's very, very encouraging for a guy that can shoot a little bit from three. Uh, he could theoretically, he's from Georgia tech. He could theoretically guard one through three on a switch just because of how, you know, his, his vertical jumping ability, his wingspan, all that stuff. Uh, you know the the guys that I knew less about going in, like uh, Melvin Frazier from Tulane, um, and then uh, Elise Johnson from Missouri State, and Kevin Hervey from Texas Arlington. 
like those are guys that I'm sure most people haven't really heard of because why like it's not like you were watching Texas Arlington games but uh, they have the kind of prototypical size with some offensive skills to go with it to be able to switch at least you know two through three, three or three through four uh, those are the types of guys that I would be targeting in the kind of 30 to 50 range just hopefully this guy is able to put his physical tools to work on the defensive end hopefully his shot is able to translate over from college uh you know Kevin Hervey was probably had the the prettiest jumper of those wings in the scrimmages uh, I thought Elise Johnson showed some intriguing uh kind of point four skills a little bit and was was rebounding pretty well um I mean chances are maybe one of all those guys I wrote up is going to end up being anything, but like I'd rather roll the dice on any one of them than like a Trayvon Duvall who I, mm-hmm. I know what that's going to be or just some big who either can't shoot at all or isn't athletic enough to be a, a role big in, in the day's NBA. Like there's, it's easier to kind of be flawed and unuse unusable as a point guard or a center, I think than, than on the wing. Like, um, uh, Semi Ojale, I think, is kind of, or even like a Jordan Bell, who technically is a center, but uh, measures as more of a wing. Uh, like those are the types of guys mm-hmm. that I think you want to be going for in the in the second round of the draft. Yeah, I mean, you hear over and over, you know, that the NBA is getting to be more of a league where those guys are who you want. You know, you, there's still going to be the high end players at each position, but you're going to want to fill out your roster with more of those type of guys, more switchy players. And I think that was reflected in who was invited this year, too. You know, a lot of the guys you just mentioned, you know, I'd I'd never heard of them. Um, But, like, in years past, I think you would have more big-name college players invited, whereas this year, you know, someone like Ethan Happ or Joel Berry or Chris Matthews from Michigan, like, those guys were not invited, but we saw guys from Missouri State and Tulane and, you know, UTA and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's following the trends of the league overall. Um, I'm trying to think if I had anyone else. Uh, we we did see Yudoka Azubuki and Sagapa Sagaba Konate going at it. Uh, Azubuki really, really has no game outside of just dunking lobs, but he did do that quite effectively. Uh, Konate, I mean, in terms of like pure shot blocking ability, he was the best guy there, but he measured in at like barely six seven and. You know, I saw some write-ups saying that he maybe worked his way into the middle of the second round. Like, he's a fun player. I hope so. But I, I, when you're that small, I just the the upside to me is just not really there. Yeah, a lot of shouting from him too. Yeah, I. He was really loud. Uh, after, this is a gym where there's no blocks. background noise um, other than the droning of. It's kind of like uncomfortable. Like it was like awkward, sort of, yeah. when he would yell after a block and like. <clears throat> just be like dude like we can all hear you like and nobody's right. into this game except for you like in just... his defense like three of the five <laughs> blocks that he maybe had during scrimmages were like legit like rejecting dunks with two hands at yeah the so, i mean i mean it would have been totally acceptable i see more game. of a case for taking him late second round than probably some of the guys that are gonna go late second round just because like maybe if he can just kind of grasp all the schemes of your defensive um program he could be like a 18 minutes off the bench rim protector if 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 your team just really really lacks rim protection in the second unit uh 
I guess I could see a case for it, but it's just, you know, he's never going to be able to shoot. He's undersized, like you said, uh, just not all that interesting. Yeah, I think the size is the main thing with him. I mean, is you can be really, really good at job blocking, but when you're six seven, I just don't think it's going to translate to the NBA. Um, Costas and Tedekumpo, not a whole lot to say about him. Looked a little bit less out of place than I thought. I mean, there were times he blew a couple switches. Um, you know, in the second day of scrimmages, he was in there for like two minutes and ended up getting pulled out, which you don't really see very often in a setting like this. Um, but did have a few highlight plays. I, I think... I think there's a chance someone grabs him with a, one of the last 10 picks in the draft just because, you know, I think the expectation with him is he's a two-way guy for at least a year. I mean, he's far off, by far the most raw player at an event that features a decent amount of raw players. Um, but I, I think, you know, someone will throw a dart at him simply because of his last name. Um, Chandler Hutchison, Boise State, he was a guy that probably would have been right on the border for five-on-five, five, but given who ended up not playing, my guess is he would have sat out he ended up not coming to the combine at all. It's now being reported that he has a promise somewhere in the 20 to 30 range, and that's widely believed to be from the Chicago Bulls. Obviously, you and I don't really know a ton about Hutchison. He was one of the guys we were looking forward to taking a look at. But as of now, sounds like he'll be going somewhere in the late 20s. Um, the last guy I have on my list is Mikhailuk. Probably one of the three worst players at the combine last year. Looked out of shape. Missed a bunch of shots, played terribly in five on five, but this time around he he measured in at I think close to six seven, had six made threes in Thursday's session, improved his vertical by four inches. Um, he's played four years of college ball and doesn't turn twenty one for like three more weeks. So, you know, in terms of upside, still fairly limited, but I think he probably played his way into the second round somewhere. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty boring. Yeah. Um also, Jonathan Gavoni is reporting that the Kings and the Hawks would pass on Doncic if he go if he doesn't go number one to Phoenix. By the way, do you buy that whatsoever? Uh, well, Kings aren't gonna pass on him, right? Well, I mean, I could believe that one or both of them prefer somebody else, but I mean, they would both have to prefer two separate guys, right? Uh, like, say they both prefer. Bagley and Bagley goes two, then Doncic is still going to be there at three yeah. and Bagley's not going to be there. Or, you know, maybe they prefer Jackson. Maybe one team prefers Jackson, one team prefers Bagley, and he falls to four. I just, I find that hard to believe. I uh, keep hearing the Hawks like Bagley, and that's just, that, I hope that's not the yeah, case for their I, sake. That's a bad fit. I, I, I still think the Suns should take Doncic one. Um, just think that there's, yeah. when you're rebuilding, team like this that's just got such a horrible environment I think he's the type of guy that could really improve that whereas I don't I don't think Aiton's a culture changer I think he's just a, a incredible talent that could very easily turn into a losing player on a team like the Sun so I would I would rather get another very capable shot creator and then kind of build up through those two guard positions but um, you know I get I get Aiton as a as a enviable player at, at number one, I just, I would prefer Doncic there, but I'd be, I'd be really shocked if now maybe, maybe one of those teams wants to trade out of the top three. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I just, I have a hard time believing that Doncic wouldn't go 
two or three to somebody, whether whether or not it's the teams currently picking there, that's to be determined, I guess. It's like if the Suns go Aiton, and let's say Sacramento is in love with Jaron Jackson, and Doncic is sitting there at three, like whether the Hawks like him or not, they're, I think they're going to get a ton of trade calls. Like There's going to be teams that never would have imagined that Doncic would fall out of the top two, you know, maybe fell through on trying to deal with, with Sacramento at two, and all of a sudden... I think, I mean, we're talking like non-lottery teams, I think, because basically when you look at the landscape of the league, there's like three teams, four teams that are positioned really well for the future, like Golden State, Houston, Philly, Boston. And then after that, there's just this abyss of pretty good teams, you know, your Portland's, your Toronto's, your Utah's, your OKC's who like, in some ways, I don't think they want to rebuild. Not everybody can rebuild, but like getting a player like Doncic, you know, I think they'd be more willing to give up an established player um, given the, the full landscape of the league right now and, and kind of trying to start planning for this post-Warriors, post-LeBron um, type of era. And, you know, I think we've heard over and over that a lot of people expect this to be an eventful draft, an eventful summer in terms of trades. Um, and the Suns themselves, even Ryan McDonough went on, their GM went on the, the telecast on Friday at least said, you know, like, I'm not I'm not necessarily shopping the number one pick, but, you know, he said for, quote, a young proven star, uh, and he admitted, you know, the list is really short. He said they'd have to think about it. Um, and, of course, I tried to go through and determine who that would be, and it's like you really can only come up with a few. You know, they want somebody under contract. You're not going to trade that, that pick for Kawhi Leonard and have him walk in a year. But it's like if, you know, if you could do number one um, for Damian Lillard, you know, a package centered around him. Like, if you're the Suns, I think you at least have to think about it. And if you're Portland, you have to think about it. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think if you're picking one, and you can't fall in love with one of these guys in this draft, I don't really know what you're looking for. It's just such mm-hmm. a benefit to get these guys when they're this age and this price than to trade for a guy like Damian Lillard who is just going to be ridiculously expensive from every year right. here on out. I think that that really kind of hamstrings you in terms of team building, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's possible they just don't really like either of the two guys, but their connections to Arizona and their hiring of Doncic's coach right. would probably say otherwise. Yeah, I, w- I would say that's a rather unlikely scenario. Um, the only team I think that that could and in some ways might have to make some sort of move as Boston. And like I don't think I don't think they're gonna deal Kyrie. I don't think they're gonna deal Hayward, but like just in terms of pure payroll, like you're gonna have to kind of continue to cultivate this talent and kinda out with the old and with the new in terms of salary because Jalen Brown's gonna get expensive. Jason Tatum eventually is gonna get expensive. Kyrie obviously needs an extension, I think, after next year. Um and you know they have a ton of Marcus Smart obviously this summer, Rozier you know, at some point you're going to have to deal some of those guys or let some of those guys walk. And I think they prefer to deal them. So I, I wouldn't rule out some sort of scenario where, you know, you could send like Rozier, Ojale, and like next year's Kings pick to, to Sacramento for two or to Atlanta for three or something like that. Like something like that, I think to me would be on the table where Boston kind of consolidates some of its assets, you know, maybe gets a better singular asset out of that. Uh, and another team can kind of take advantage of Boston having a little too much on his plate right now. That's interesting. I think I would – I don't think I would do that at two. I'd probably strongly consider it at three, however. Mm-hmm. So, I think three or below. Yeah, I think that that's 
somewhere where that could work. But I mean, it's dangerous. I think it is dangerous trading for some of these Celtics guys Mm -hmm. that build up their value there and then they're pretty much always less valuable wherever they go. I mean, really no precedent for that working out the other way. Um, Okay. All right. Let's wrap this up here. We'll embed this, um, this podcast in the article on the site. Make sure you go read that. Do you have any baseball prospect stuff you want to plug? No. have a 401k you're not getting the most for retirement wait what add a Robinhood ira on top then they'll boost it by three percent you can do that and if you transfer in any retirement account you get three percent on top of that is there a limit to the match no limit Robinhood gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any ira on the market sign up for Robinhood gold at robinhood.com boost by april 30th subscription fees apply investing involves risk three percent match requires gold for one year from first match must keep ira for five years match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions Robinhood financial llc member sipc